Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Katie Lawler Turnbull, a full-time mom to a three-year-old as well as a NICU nurse and has a master's in human rights. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm so pleased that you're here. I uh, Before we started recording, I had asked you if you had any exciting gossip from the NICU, and then I sort of realized probably all of that gossip would just be you know, you'll never believe who's breathing unassisted these days, <laughs> which doesn't quite like have the same ring to it. But then you told me that you are also now uh, working with preschoolers, which I imagine does have some fun gossip. Yes. Well, I was trying to think of a good way to describe it. And I was like, imagine going to a party with like 15 of your most fun and funniest friends and they are all drunk and you have to try and get them to do something all together at the same time. And that is pretty much what it feels like. That sounds pretty adorable. <laughs> um, they are very adorable. It's, yeah, it's a very joyful job. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I, I also appreciate that because you weren't like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about Patrick. You kept it general. No. And I think that oh, was no. the right oh, move. No. Right? They're all wonderful in their own ways. Yeah, no, that I definitely believe. I think three years old, it's it's pretty hard to be anything other than pretty cute. So luckily or unluckily, we are not advising any three-year-olds today. We are advising <laughs> adults who are more complicated, but that can be good as well as, as difficult. And I, I sort of love our first question. I don't think I've ever gotten a question quite like this one, which is uh, someone who's like, I used to be codependent. I don't think I'm codependent anymore, but I might become codependent again in the future. <laughs> do I need to go to Codependence Anonymous? And, and so it is, I think, a good example of like a very little mood. Like this is not an urgent problem. This is not like all of my relationships are in crisis. This is just a sort of general question about like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And my guess is that the worst thing that could happen is you go to a few meetings and it feels a little boring. So it's nice to start with this one because we're not going to be able to ruin this person's life, even if we, frankly, even if we tried. <laughs> good. I don't want to ruin anyone's lives today. Great. I mean, we never do. And yet sometimes it seems to happen all by itself. <laughs> so the subject is, do I need more folding chairs in my life? I'm interested in joining a 12-step program, maybe Codependence Anonymous, because I've had a lot of codependency in previous relationships, but I don't currently feel severely codependent. Since I'm in a good relationship where I feel comfortable with conflict, and I recently left a job that didn't respect my boundaries. In the past, I've also occasionally struggled with convincing myself that my mental health is worse than it actually is. For example, suspecting that I have ADHD or PTSD when what I really have is pretty common anxiety that also sometimes affects my ability to focus. I've talked to my therapist about this, and I'm avoiding online mental health influencer content for the time being since that can often trigger this. I'm usually functioning or coping better than I give myself credit for. I do think I have codependent tendencies that I've substantially overcome, but it would be nice to have a group where I can make sure I don't backslide and keep growing. My life isn't unmanageable right now, but it certainly was five or 10 years ago. 
I get the value of radically accepting your codependency or alcoholism, et cetera, in the 12-step programs. But the idea of introducing myself at a meeting by saying my name is blank and I'm codependent rubs me the wrong way since it reminds me of my own issues with over-pathologizing myself. What are your thoughts? Should I join and just follow the norms? Cross my fingers behind my back. So as I said, you know, not in crisis, five to 10 years out from the last crisis, just thinking about the possibility of going to a group. Uh, I myself have never attended a meeting of Codependence Anonymous. I don't know. I feel like I know some people who have read the book Codependent No More. And one time I saw it like left out on the street on the side of a building, but that's about (laughs) the extent of my familiarity with it. And I was like, either someone had a great day uh, or they've given up. (laughs) True. Yeah. Did you have any strong thoughts here? I will say also that I have never been to a codependence anonymous meeting or read the codependency book, but I did look up CODA, the codependency anonymous organization, to just to get a little background. Um, initial thought I as I was reading, I was like, oh, I bet they it would be so helpful for them to talk to a therapist. And then they said they were. And I thought that they were so introspective and sounds like they have already done so much great work thinking about their areas for growth and prioritizing their health and well-being and the progress that they've already made. So I think they are going in the right direction. Um, is that kind of how you felt? Yeah. You know, I, I think I had a couple of different sort of stray thoughts. One of them was, I really don't always know, I think, what people mean when they say codependency. Like yes. I have a general sense of, okay, maybe you're afraid of being alone or you defer too much to your friends or particularly romantic partners in relationships, but it's not, I can't quite pin it down. I wouldn't say it's like as vague or open-ended as a word like toxic. And I certainly don't mean to say like, there's not a suite of behaviors that can accompany this that could be well tended to as a sort of single unified idea. Just that, you know, what does that look like for you? It seems like maybe in the past it would mean never quitting a job no matter how badly things were going or never breaking up with someone no matter how badly they treated you and that you've been able to change that. And so I think I share the letter writer's sense of, I don't know that the term codependent is going to be an identity that's going to be useful to you as you think about how to solve your problem. So if your main concern is, I'm a little worried that again in the future, I might become overly dependent upon a job or a relationship or fear conflict in some sort of vague and open-ended way. I would probably lean more towards just continuing to discuss that in therapy, maybe discussing it with a friend or two or a partner, maybe have a sense of what would I want to be on the lookout for? How would I know that I was exhibiting some of these tendencies rather than just, am I being codependent? Yes or no? Yes, that seems totally legit. I, I guess I was also thinking about it. I, I, I think the thing that I'm most familiar with is codependency in terms of like alcoholism and drug addiction where it's describing like the specific behaviors and coping mechanisms from the non-addicted partner or family sure. member who's dealing with someone in active addiction. And I think maybe that's why I'm, I'm a little less certain when you remove chemical substance addiction from that and you just talk about someone who's codependent without like a, a sort of like pretty debilitating alcoholic condition underlying it where I'm just like, But what is it then if it's not about somebody's alcoholism or drug addiction? Again, that's not to say it can only exist under those circumstances, just that I I don't know what where it or originates from without that. Yes. Agreed. I think that was one of the things that kind of stuck me on this question too of 
what exactly does that mean, being codependent? And going back to the CODA website, again, they were just talking about, I rely too much on other people's thoughts and feelings and needs and ignore my own and prioritize what I feel I quote unquote should do rather than what is truly authentic to myself. So I thought that was kind of ironic in this question too, because they're saying, what should I do in this situation? Should I follow these rules, even if I don't feel like that is authentic to me? Um, And I feel like that's kind of the opposite of what you want to do. So I don't know if there are strict rules at the meetings about how you can introduce yourself. Um, But if letter writer felt that those meetings would be helpful, I mean, maybe they could say something like, I have struggled with codependent tendencies in the past and just have it as another tool in their tool belt to help with their progress. But as you said previously, maybe just talking about it with a friend or a therapist would be enough and they don't feel like they have to go to a meeting. Yeah. Or if they wanted to look for, you know, a different kind of support group that's not necessarily centered around the idea of codependence, but that just had to do with people in your sort of general time of life or dealing with relationships or who are just looking for, you know, general ways to connect with other people about how they're doing in life, uh, that might be useful to you instead. Certainly, I think you can. You can always go to a meeting and check it out, Um, especially if you've never been to a 12-step meeting. It can sometimes feel like, what are the rules? But like, you could go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting uh, and not have to introduce yourself at all. That's not mandatory. Or you could say, my name is such and such, and I'm just here checking this out. Or if somebody says, do you want to speak? You can say, oh, I'll pass for now. Like, No one's going to say you need to raise your hand and introduce yourself as thus and such. Um, So again, with any 12-step group, there is no president who can say, you have to do this. Again, if if your struggle is, uh, I avoid conflict and I try to do what everybody else is doing, I can understand why. Well, everyone else raised their hands and said, I'm such and such and I'm codependent. So I feel pressure, but that is a, a different degree of internal pressure as opposed to they're going to make me say it, and then I will be behaving inauthentically. Yes. I actually did not know that. I, d- I wasn't sure how strict they were about the rules. Are you allowed to attend and just listen? Or is that too, like, voyeuristic for people who are there? Obviously, they're very sensitive subjects. But if you're allowed to just dip in and try it out and see if it's a good fit, that's obviously an excellent option. Yeah, and I, again, I don't know if this same rubric would make sense in terms of codependency, but like AA meetings, for example, you know, and this is like publicly freely available information that anyone can see if they like look at a local bulletin board at like a community church or visit any of the like AA websites. Um, There's like a list of meetings that are publicly available. Everyone can see when and where they are. uh, And it will usually either say whether a meeting is open or closed. And if it's closed, it means that, 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 the people who attend should only be people with an active interest in not drinking. So that's not to say you have to be such and such amount of sober or even you have to be sober right now. It's just if, if you don't think that you might need to get help with your drinking, don't go to these meetings and everything else. You can go if you're just curious, if you're not sure, uh, if you're sometimes there'll be meetings where people will say like, you know, I'm doing my medical residency or like a psych rotation and they suggest we stop by one of these meetings. So I'm just here to check it out. So again. It's, it's pretty loose, but I don't know if that, I don't even know if you would need that degree of openness versus closed for something like codependency, which does not really have the same, like 
alcoholism, like, you know, if you're drinking or not. Um, yes. Whereas codependency can be a little bit more fuzzy. So anyways, all of that is just to say, you can kind of do whatever you want. No one's really the boss of you. But I do think that it's probably important to spend a little time with this idea about sometimes I convince myself that my mental health is worse than it is. Or I was actually kind of confused about that because it seemed a little bit like I can be a hypochondriac when it comes to mental health issues as opposed to, you know, letter writer, if you have anxiety that sometimes affects your ability to focus, I don't think it's that weird that for a while you thought you might have ADHD or PTSD. Like maybe there's just more information you weren't able to include, but it, it sounds like you thought that was a possibility. You talked it over with your therapist and or your doctor, uh, you kind of one or both of you realized that you didn't meet the criteria, but then you found, well, what is at the root of this? So I don't know. It wasn't like somebody was saying, I commit myself twice a year because I'm obsessed with the possibility that I'm about to have a psychotic break. And that itself is really confusing and debilitating so much as just, I had some psychiatric symptoms. I wasn't sure what was causing it. And then I I think I, I found the answer with my mental health team. Does that seem like a an accurate summary to you? I don't want to dismiss this letter writer's concerns. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, when you articulated that about that is logical if you're having trouble focusing or concentrating, those could be different mental health illnesses. Um, yeah, I think also I was more tripped up by the part about usually coping way better than I give myself credit for because it sort of didn't, it was a little confusing to me. Like if you're coping very well, you usually feel well, then you wouldn't have to give yourself credit or not. But maybe I'm just misunderstanding what they were saying. I was wondering, to me, that sounded a little bit like a, a therapeutic conversation. Like the letter writer had said, I feel like everything's falling apart. And then the therapist had said, like, well, how are things at work? How are things with your partner? Did you handle this recent conflict well? And the sort of general conclusion was, do you think perhaps you're actually doing better than you think you are? Or, or not to say like there's no reason for concern, but like this sounds more like the voice of anxiety than it does how things are actually going in your day-to-day life, which is not the same thing as things are actually fine. I'm actually doing great so much as separating uh, fears about what might be going on versus like, oh no, I know my partner's happy. We had a good conversation yesterday and like they confirmed it. I'm just still worried. Yes, yes. And that definitely seems like kind of a thread through all of this worries about what might happen or what might be going on versus being able to just say I'm doing okay or this is how I can bolster myself. Yeah. And it seemed like good uh, insight or possibly it came as a suggestion from the therapist of like, I'm avoiding mental health influencer content by which I imagine they mean like those deranged infographics you can see on social media that's like these three things if they've ever happened to you you've got these nine diagnoses and like absolutely I think giving a lot of that shit a wide berth or someone doing like a little dance where they point at like you know if you ever felt sleepy you're dying um this is not an accurate summary of anything I just don't want to like get too specific or dismissive um, I think that's great. I think especially if that, if you see a video of someone describing a particular mental health condition and you're like, oh, fuck, I must have it. Good to give that a wide berth. I think that's probably good advice for for most people. Um, that seems great. Yes. And you should probably just watch more funny cat videos because that's what I usually watch on social media. Yeah. 
I, I basically think, letter writer, this is a really long-winded way of saying, it sounds like you're doing pretty well. I concur with most of your sentiments here. Uh, if you want to go to a meeting of CODA, you absolutely can. No one is going to demand that you identify yourself as one thing or the other the first minute you walk in. Um, you can also check out other support groups or just like spend more time socializing with friends if what you're just experiencing is a sort of general desire for more community or more conversations about how you're doing. That would be fine. But if the worst thing that happens is you go to a few CODA meetings and you're like, eh, this isn't really for me, that's fine. Agreed. Great. Amazing. Well, I guess this letter writer is coping way better than they give themselves credit for. And uh, I feel fine getting mad about infographics. I don't know. This, the idea of an infographic doesn't make me mad. I just think like the difference between someone sharing ideas about their own mental health that might make somebody else feel either less alone or more easily able to identify something similar in themselves. I don't want to pathologize that. But yeah, I think if you're watching like countless videos that are describing ambiguous or open-ended experiences that many people might have and trying to, you know, uh, arrive at a suite of diagnoses for yourself solely on the strength of those videos, I, I could see why you might sometimes not have a good time. Well, on that note, do you want to move ahead into our next letter? Yes, let's do it. I don't know why I asked that question. Like, it's not like you're going to say no. <laughs> I guess it's maybe an opportunity for you to say, you know, I did have one last thought. Okay, good. So, fantastic. I like this one. I don't know if this is made up. I had a slight suspicion. It, 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 it didn't read as totally inauthentic, but it possibly had the ring of like, and then my three-year-old summed up the situation beautifully and everyone in the grocery <laughs> store stood up and applauded. Um, but all of that's to say, if this is made up, that's great. And if it's not, frankly, even better. How often do you have letters that are made up or that you later find out were made up? I'll never know. I'll never. I mean, one time I knew because somebody ended up writing an article about it. And so that's, you know, that's that's one way that. But frankly, they could have been lying about that. There's that's nothing true. stopping anyone from writing an article saying I wrote these letters. So that's yeah. the only one I know for sure. Um, if somebody or does do make you. them up or do I? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> How do I know that you're not making this up right now? <laughs> you never will. Yeah. If I really, if for whatever reason, I really strongly suspect something is made up, I won't read it. But I, even if I strongly suspect it, I could be mistaken because it's just my gut instinct. Yeah. I guess the only reason I thought it could be possible is like, it. I don't know a lot of six foot one trans guys, but like, of course they exist. There's just not a lot of them. But, you know, the world is interesting and full of lots of interesting things. So. True. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop talking about the letter and I'm going to read it. The subject is insecurity or transphobia. I am a woman in my mid-30s and I have two younger brothers, Mike, who's cis in his early 30s, and Sam, who's FTM and in his late 20s. When Sam came out as trans, everyone in our family was accepting. He waited to start HRT and socially transition until after he was discharged from the army, and we all live in different parts of the country, so we only see each other in person a few times a year. Mike is 5'8 and slender. Sam is six foot one and muscular and has a deeper voice and a fuller beard. At a recent family gathering, one of our cousins said to Sam that if somebody asked which of the two of them was trans, they'd think it was Mike. Sam said that was inappropriate. Mike heard this comment, although I'm not sure if he heard Sam's reply, and I think his feelings were hurt, even though he didn't say anything in response at the time. But since then, Mike has made several comments about his maleness is, quote, real and not artificial. 
I've told him this is uncalled for, although I think this is coming from a place of insecurity rather than transphobia. He shrugs it off and says he's just speaking the truth. I've asked Sam how he feels about it, and he shrugs it off and says it's Mike's problem, not his. Do I keep trying to get Mike to stop, or do I follow Sam's lead and leave Mike to hopefully work it out on his own? I am inclined to think that this is real, if only because a cousin at a wedding saying apropos of nothing, hey, you know, if somebody asked me which of you two were trans, I'd guess the other one. That sounds so much like something a cousin would say at a wedding, (laughs) where you're just like, why would you say that? What made you think this was important information to be shared? Everyone has a cousin like that. At least one. Yeah. I mean, what what was sort of your thoughts there? Did you get a sense of whether or not Mike was saying this just to the letter writer or if this was like in groups? I mean, clearly Sam has heard this at least once or twice. Yeah. I guess I did agree with letter writer that it potentially could be coming from a place of insecurity. And um, I don't know how often Mike makes comments like these, but um, I also agreed with letter writer that, or no, he asked if he should try to get Mike to stop. And I think that's kind of fruitless. Letter writer can only control letter writer and Mike is going to do what Mike's going to do. But I do think it's useful to push back if he hears Mike saying these comments, you know. That's to be not clear, the letter writer is a woman. She she mentions at the beginning of the letter. Okay. Okay. Sorry. If I so she's the that. sister. No, not at all. Sister, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts. There's cousins. There's the army. There's people talking. It's a lot going on. Okay, sister. Sorry. So she can continue to say, you know, that's not appropriate, Mike. Please don't say that. That's hurtful, or whatever. But um, it sounds like hopefully it's not bothering Sam, and um, it's going to be hard to control Mike's behavior. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I wish the cousin hadn't said that. That's a fucked up thing to say. And like, good on Sam for being like, that's a weird thing to say. Don't say that to me. Um, I wish very much that Mike had, for his part, said something in the moment to the cousin rather than from then on go around saying like, well, at least I was born a man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we we don't always speak up in the right moments. I, I think I'm broadly in, in your court, which is like, yeah, if he's saying this stuff in front of you, absolutely. Like when he says it, be like, shut the fuck up, man. Um, mm-hmm. Or or whatever would feel like consistent with your sibling relationship. Not in the sense of like, I've got to read you the riot act or we've got to rehash this for the 19th time, but just something like brief and like, fuck off. Like, I, I think is the right level of uh, response to at least I was born a guy. Um, it does feel pretty clear where this stems from. And like, I don't know that insecurity or transphobia makes sense to me. I think it's clearly both. Like, if you if you are talking about somebody's like birth assignment in a negative way, that's just I, I don't I don't see how you can get out of the transphobia charges on that one. It also seems really clear to me that it is born out of somebody saying, "I think you know you Mike look trans," which I also understand why he didn't enjoy that. No one wa- I don't know not no one wants to. No one wants to be like informed. If I were to guess what you or your brother are compared to one another, here's how I think it would shake out. Like, no one no one ever wants that, regardless of whether you're both cis or both. Like, if they were both cis and the cousin had said, boy, if I had to guess if one of you was trans, I'd think it was the short one, I bet he would still be really pissed off. Mm-hmm. So this is all a really long-winded way of saying, I think, don't get more upset than Sam does, but certainly continue to be like, man, fuck off with that. That's ridiculous. 
Um, I would probably stop short of saying to Mike, I only think you're saying this because someone pointed out the fact that like you're short and you have a gay voice, which again, I don't think would be helpful to anyone. And I really understand why Sam is not bothered because Sam is six foot one. (laughs) Sam is a six foot one trans guy. He's got no problems. You can't hurt his feelings. Like that's why he doesn't care. If I were six foot one, you could (laughs) kill me and I wouldn't mind. I'd be like, I'm six one. Who cares? Look at how tall I am. Yeah, <laughs> you won. <laughs> I'm, I'm tall. My voice is in the basement. I've got a like lush beard. I'm basically Richard the Lionheart. I, I like to to me. I'm just like, yeah, that's like shitty what Mike is saying. But also, Sam does not have a problem here because he's so tall. And you know, Mike, I, I wish that you could enjoy being five eight. As a, as a five, seven and a half guy, I think it's just great to be in a good mood about your height because, you know, being, being bitter about it doesn't make you look taller. So true. Yeah, I, I think maybe that would be the like most I would encourage a letter writer to say like, no, but you can't. Cause it would be like, frankly, like Mike being this catty is unfortunately not going to help you beat the trans allegations, um, would be like wonderfully bitchy. But it would really be like reinforcing uh, a, a lot of kind of like ugly ideas about height and and behavior and gender and gayness that um, I don't think your family needs more of. So pretend that I didn't say that. <laughs> that can just be the one that you like write up in a piece of paper and then tear it up in glee just so you can get it out. Yeah, I could say it, but I'm not there and I'm not in your family. And frankly, I shouldn't say it. So, uh, <laughs> you know. It is difficult. It's difficult when someone is like repeating a joke that's also clearly not a joke and it's very barbed and they're clearly upset, but they don't want to admit it and they wouldn't say when they were upset the first time. I think it's just really hard when someone's very angry and pretending not to be. Yes, definitely. I don't know if that's something you've ever experienced in your own life. Yeah, I mean, and I think if people are just not being direct or saying what they really want to say, it's hard to respond in an appropriate way manner. It's hard. I don't know if you feel this way, but oftentimes I think if I am angry but haven't yet quite admitted it to myself and I'm still in that mode of I'm not angry, this is just an objectively irritating situation or I'm not angry, I'm just pointing out something I think is funny and someone else says, you know, I think you're angry. I feel a little bit like when I was like a teenager on a family trip and I woke up later than everyone else and everyone's like, oh, you're up late, which is like totally disproportionate levels of blind fury <laughs> and like total denial. Just like, I, I wasn't asleep. I've never been asleep in my life. You're asleep. <laughs> I woke up at five. Um, and it's like, wh- wh- I don't know why I get so defensive. Like if I'm happy and someone says, you seem happy, I'm not like, fuck you. Like, but if I am invested in pretending I'm not very angry and someone else just says, not even like in a rude way, just trying to say, it seems like you're pretty upset. I just get so, no, I'm not. Never been mad in my life. Yeah, well, I think, it can be hard if you haven't, like you said, if you haven't gotten there yourself yet and then someone else names it for you and it's like, how dare you? I am not. You know, yeah. sometimes you, it's, you're not quite there yet. Yeah, it's just funny how vulnerable anger can make us. Like the idea of admitting you're angry when you're angry and it's obvious to everyone around you is like, you're not going to lose anything if you admit it. But it just feels like I couldn't possibly be that weak in front of someone else. Yeah, and, it's hard. You know, it's like, I think... It, it seems clear that Mike thinks there's something really shameful about feeling insecure about his height and his size and his overall demeanor, especially compared with his brother. And especially, I think, probably a real sense of 
you know, I can't believe this trans guy has lapped me. But again, like, I I think this would also still be present if they were both trans or both cis. And it, I don't know. It's, it's like, yes, transphobia is informing his insecurity, but I think it's also just, it's there. And it's also possible. Sam frankly feels like honestly having my like brother sniping at me because I'm taller in a weird way feels affirming, which is not to say that Sam likes this. Just like Sometimes when someone is snitty to you in a way that kind of lines up with your gender, it can sort of feel like, I know I'm supposed to mind this, but I actually feel cool and powerful. Yes. Yes. I totally get that. But yeah, it's hard. And it's just, you know, it's not nice of Mike, especially because like Sam defended him, you know, it's like Mike is now blaming Sam for something your cousin said. And uh, I, I guess that maybe then... I would like to amend my answer, which is I know that you've talked to Mike in the moment and he's just said, I'm just speaking the truth. And, you know, I would maybe suggest like one last time just saying like, maybe you didn't hear this, but Sam actually defended you uh, when our cousin said that. And um, I don't know, maybe you're just speaking the truth, but I think it's sort of curious that you never brought up this truth until somebody else called you short. Um, And so I find the timing interesting. Uh, and not in a way that's like, and therefore admit your hypocrisy, you piece of shit so much. as just like, I just want you to know Sam actually stood up for you. Sam wasn't laughing at you or like laughing it off. Sam took it seriously and said that was fucked up. Sam was not talking about you in like a snide way. And I just want you to know, I'm really sorry our cousin said that. That was a fucked up thing to say, both to Sam and for you. Like they shouldn't have done that. That was fucked up. And if you're mad at them, I really understand. I think that would hopefully combine a kind of equal amount of like, you need to knock this off. This is not good. And also acknowledge like, and there's an appropriate target of anger here. I don't think you should start like calling this cousin and saying something really fucked up to them every week, but like suggest a reorientation. And then if that doesn't work, just go back to man, shut up. Yeah. I was going to say too, I hope that the cousin took a minute to think about what they said. Um, And maybe had a little dialogue about why that wasn't important because it seems like the cousin got off scot-free and then now Mike is just dealing with the aftermath. Right. No, I hope that's so... I really hope the cousin in this situation is like waking up in the middle of the night and just being like, oh my God, why did I say that? Because why would like, why would you ever say to anyone, cis or trans, cousin or otherwise, hey, you know, you and your sibling, if someone asked me to guess which one of you is trans... Just just stop yourself right there. Who's doing that? Who has Nobody. ever said, hey, I need you to guess this? Like, that's not something that people ever have to do. And yet that they would sometimes volunteer that information is so astonishing. Yes, it is. I was the, I was like, wait, was this at a wedding? Because all of the best drama happens at family weddings. But they said only that it was a gathering, so... Oh, yeah. I I did also assume that it was a wedding. And I think it kind of had the feeling of a wedding get together because it was like, I bet they were all drunk. And I bet yes. a lot of them hadn't seen each other in a while. But you're right. I, I don't know if it's the wedding either. But it's, you know, it's tough out there. It is it is amazing how, you know, speaking as a guy, five, seven experience, if you're just like happy with your height and you like maintain a good attitude, people like at most will like lightly tease you about it but they're mostly just like, yeah, that's nice. And man, if you carry it around like a big chip on your shoulder, it makes people so annoyed with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know that there's any advice I have on that. Just like, boy, oh boy, you can make it only worse for yourself or just like kind of remove it. Uh, Those are your two options. But like no one has ever made themselves taller by being really sensitive about their height. That's so true. And I mean, honestly, I think short guys are the best. I dated a really tall guy before my husband and I always had a neck ache from looking up at him. So I think I just won the lottery now. I mean, I I also don't want to say like, hey, don't have any strong feelings about your appearance or never feel sad about things you can't change so much as just like, it's one thing if you're like, I really sometimes have a hard time with this. I really have these like thoughts all the time of like just wishing I was taller. I don't want to say to someone like, well, just cheer up, buttercup. But I really, (laughs) really do think like taking responsibility for a feeling and saying, all right, like I can deal with this feeling and maybe sometimes share with it, uh, share it with some of the people that I'm close to. But I don't want to like walk around in the world where if anybody else makes a lighthearted joke about it, again, even I I can feel sensitive about it. I can say like, I don't like that or that hurts my feelings, but not to be like belligerent or always on the offensive or then follow it up with a lot of like bitter and caustic jokes about somebody else's authenticity because I'm so upset. Like that is the thing that I think is just, you're not helping yourself and you're only turning people against you. And, And then I think, you know, this sort of like translates maybe a little into your own work with kids at preschool and also like kids in the hospital. Um, Cause I imagine it involves dealing with a lot of stressed out families on a pretty regular basis is mm-hmm. I feel like part of what was underlining this last letter was a sense of if I can understand where my brother was coming from, like if I understand that it's insecure, I'm like not allowed to say that it's transphobic or I'm not allowed to be that mad. And I think that's sometimes something I want to advise people against. It's like you can both understand the stress or frustration or hurt that is leading someone to behave badly that that doesn't mean then that it's okay that they're doing it. Um, and I just wonder if that was something that you had had a cause to think about in some of your own work about the difference between, yeah, I get why you're, you know, flying off the handle a little bit, but also I really need you to stop flying off the handle. Totally. I hadn't thought of that in that context, but you're absolutely right. Um, I think always trying to be empathetic, sympathetic, whatever will be helpful in the situation. Um, But people still need to behave in a respectful manner to the best of their ability, um, regardless of what's going on, you know. And you'll always see people that can handle the most extreme pressure with a lot of grace. And then there are examples of people who just can't. So I guess give them a little extra understanding if you can but yeah it's still totally appropriate to call people out when when their behavior is not acceptable or hurtful to somebody else yeah and sorry i really like threw you on for that one i was like and i bet sometimes families of children in the nicu (laughs) act like this guy i did not mean to suggest that they were like on par with one another just that um there is a difficult line to be walked between i think i understand why someone is acting out right now versus if I understand and I can sympathize, then that just means I have to let it go. And I don't think that that's the case. Yeah, no, totally. Um, no, it just uh, caught me off guard and I started scrolling through stories in my head about like, oh, and I remember that person and what that happened. And I was like, I won't tell those stories though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious then, did you sort of at some point transition into more preschool work in part because you were feeling like, I think I'm ready to start moving on from like, NICU crisis cases or was it just like a totally different career path that kind of took you by surprise or 
Oh, yeah. No, it was not on purpose at all. I love the NICU. And I just, I've been, I work casually since my daughter was born um, so that she doesn't have to go to daycare. Um, but I knew there was a teacher shortage at her school last year. Um, and I knew the director and I had helped out before. Um, so even though I don't have experience per se as a preschool teacher, I kind of knew the routine and asked them if they needed the help because I can't work eight hours at the hospital when my daughter's only at school for two and a half hours. Um, so it just took a totally left-hand turn into a new new adventure this year. I do love the idea, though, of working casually where you just like find an employer and you say, here's how many hours a day my kid is somewhere else. And they're just like, great, we'll take you for two and a half hours. <laughs> I know. If only. Wouldn't that be nice? I think that would be fantastic. And I wish that we could do that all the time. And I feel like yeah. probably that's possible somewhere. But yeah, I would love to like work five different jobs for four hours a day, several times a week. I don't know what that adds up to. Please do not ask me to multiply those numbers together. <laughs> I have no idea if that adds up to a part-time job or not. But it would be so interesting. You get to do five different jobs and just like when you get tired of that one, I'm just going to switch to this other one. It would just be like a Richard Scary book all the time. And <laughs> that's really all that I want. On that note, I think that's all the advice that I've got left in me. Katie, thank you so much for making the time to help offer some strangers advice. I appreciate it immensely. Thank you, Danny. This was such a pleasure. And hopefully we didn't ruin anyone's life today, but um, I think we did okay. Yeah. I mean, if we did, don't tell us about it. I don't want to know. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. You know, I related both to the letter writer and in some ways to Alex, because I sometimes, I don't know everything that's going on with Alex in quite the same way that the letter writer has shared, but like, I can certainly relate to big grand gestures, over-promising and under-delivering. And then if I have failed to live up to something I said I would do, feeling embarrassed enough that part of me is like, if I just pretend that didn't happen, it didn't really happen in a way that can like, you know, avoidance begets more avoidance. And then I'm really hoping nobody else has noticed. Of course, other people have noticed. And like my inability to face my own perhaps minor faults snowballs into some pretty significant ones and make people feel pretty like confused. And then I can also relate to, I'm mad, but I don't want to admit it. I'm actually super over it. I was only ever mad 10 years ago. That was the last time I was mad. Ask me again in 10 years. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.